Mark 9, 30 to 37. Jesus and his disciples left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about the rest of you, but when we were in the throes of the pandemic, I was a little leery of turning on the news. In 2020, I followed the news avidly as the pandemic grew, as we tried to make sense of all of the things, as new information came to light, as new guidelines were unveiled. But by 2021, by 2021, turning on the radio made me anxious. Would doctors be announcing another new variant more contagious than the last? Would government officials be announcing more restrictions? Would there be news of an outbreak in a place where family and friends lived? I was tired of feeling anxious. So I didn't want to keep listening to things that made me more anxious. I wanted life to be normal, wanted a, just a day, one full day, when I could pretend that we weren't still in a pandemic and that there was no reason to be afraid. There were so many days when I just wanted to ignore it all, to change the subject when the pandemic came up in conversation and to talk instead of things that were more happy or more concrete that made me feel a bit more secure. And that desire to stop talking about things that make us afraid and to focus on anything else is as old as time itself. Our penchant for changing the subject when a particular topic makes us uncomfortable is something I think we can all understand. So it's not surprising that we encounter this very thing in this story from Mark 9. The disciples are a prime example of a group of people who want a change in conversation. Because Jesus has been having a particularly distressing conversation with them for a while now, and they are tired of it. As we've noted before, in chapter 8, the chapter before this, after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus immediately responds by, to that declaration by saying that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and then rise again after three days. 
And Peter, you'll remember, does not like this very much and tells Jesus as such. But Jesus doesn't let up. Six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain where he is transfigured. And again, as they make their way back down the mountain, Jesus tells them that the Son of Man must suffer. When they meet up with the rest of the disciples, Jesus casts out the demon from the boy, as Pastor Tom talked about last week. All of this takes place in the villages around Caesarea Philippi, which is a city at the northern end of the region of Galilee. It's about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. But after casting out the demon, Jesus and his disciples leave that area and head south towards Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus continues to teach the disciples, continues to tell them that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men who will kill him, and after three days he will rise from the dead. Now this is a spot where grammar really helps us understand what's going on. Because when we read these verses in English, it sounds like this is a one-time conversation in which Jesus says a thing and the disciples don't understand it. But the verbs in the Greek in these verses are all in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense connotes that this is an ongoing activity. Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples once that he's going to suffer and die, but tells them this continually as they travel south through Galilee. And the disciples aren't just unable to understand this in this one moment. They are in a perpetual state of confusion about things. They simply do not understand what Jesus is telling them. And, says Mark, they're afraid to ask Jesus about it. Now, they could be afraid for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they don't want to admit to Jesus that they don't understand this thing he has been telling them over and over again. Maybe they don't want to understand what Jesus means afraid of what they might hear, of what it might mean. Or maybe they have an inkling of what Jesus is saying, and they just want to ignore it. Because if it's true, it's a horrible thing to contemplate. After all, if Jesus is going to die, what might happen to them? Whatever the reason this conversation about Jesus' suffering and death is making them anxious. And so they change the subject. They start to argue about who among them is the greatest. And that might seem like an odd conversation to us, but discussions like this were actually pretty normal at the time. This society operated on an honor-based system, and it was very important that people received the honor they were due. The German theologian Adolf Schlatter wrote in one commentary, at all points, in worship, in the administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question, who was the greater? And estimating the honor due to each was a task which had constantly to be fulfilled. 
and was felt to be very important. By discussing who among them was the greatest, the disciples were trying to reestablish some sense of order and security in the midst of their confusion and fear. They wanted to structure their world, to regain some control, to reassure each other that life is governed by rules. And if you just follow the rules, we'll be okay. But they know, even as they try to establish some certainty in response to Jesus' remarks, that this kind of thing is not what Jesus is about. They know enough about Jesus to know that he would not be impressed by this jockeying for status. So when they arrive in Capernaum, and Jesus casually asks them, So what were you all arguing about while we were walking? They stare at the floor in sheepish silence. Jesus, of course, knows the content of their conversation. But he doesn't yell at them or scold them or tell them they should know better. He gathers these very human disciples together and teaches them. Jesus sits, the characteristic position for a rabbi teaching his students. And he tells them, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. In other words, status in the kingdom of God isn't given because of the rules of society, isn't based on the normal pecking order, isn't a matter of someone getting what they deserve because of who their family is or what position they hold. Greatness is measured in service, in giving up what you think you are owed and instead offering yourself to others. And to really make this point, Jesus offers the disciples a very tangible illustration. Jesus and his disciples are staying in someone's family home. And so Jesus calls over one of the kids who have probably been lurking against a wall or peeking around a doorway in curiosity. And you have to know that in the ancient Near East, kids are at the very bottom of the pecking order. They had no legal status and no rights. Children weren't just to be seen and not heard. If there was an honored guest present, they weren't to be seen either. They weren't worth bothering with. In Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke, the word for child and servant is the same. Ooh, did I? Yeah, no, I'm there. Jesus takes this child and brings him or her into the very center of the room. And not only that, Jesus takes this child on his lap into his arms, gives this child a hug. Jesus welcomes the child, acknowledges the worth and the value of this child, and tells the disciples to do the same. 
Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. Just as society in the ancient Near East was governed by principles of honor and rank and status, there was also a legal principle at the time that stated that the emissary of a person, the the representative, the ambassador of a person, was to be received as though it was that person himself. So if a, a king sent a member of his court to represent him at a banquet, that person was to be treated as though they were the king himself. Now, of course, most of the time, this ambassador would also be someone of status and rank. And so this would be an easy thing to do, to give them this honor. But Jesus is saying that his representative on earth is someone of no rank, of no prestige, who has no position in society. A child, a servant. People who were not actors in their own story, but who were often acted upon. Because Jesus is a person who will be acted upon. He will be handed over, paradidomai in the Greek, which is in the passive tense. This happens to Jesus. He will be as one with no rank or prestige or position, but someone deemed so unworthy that his very life will be taken away. So to receive someone society also deems unworthy is to receive Christ into our midst. To receive someone who lives life on the edge of the crowd, standing against the walls, peeking through the doorways, an outsider is to receive Christ in our midst. To receive someone who challenges our own narratives of rank and honor and status is to receive Christ into our midst. And to receive Christ into our midst is to receive the presence of the triune God into our midst. Which is, at the end of the day, the very best antidote to fear. The way through our fear, through our anxiety, says Jesus, is not to ignore it, but to welcome God into it. To welcome God into our life, which we do by welcoming one another into our lives, by serving one another, by placing the needs of someone else above our own, by forgetting about ourselves because we are so focused on naming the dignity and the worth of our neighbor, by imitating the God who gave up his own life for the sake of another, we make the presence of God known among us. And if God is with us, of what? Should we be afraid? 
So what does this look like? What does it look like to welcome an emissary of Jesus into our midst? Well, instead of telling you, I want to show you a video of two churches in the Christian Reformed Church that are doing just this, that are welcoming the stranger, the outsider, welcoming the one that's on the edge into the center, and so receiving Christ among them. So nine years ago, when we started here as pastors, we wanted to connect with our neighbors. But there's so much mistrust of institution, a lot of mistrust of the church. We've tried to explore ways as pastors, as neighbors, how do we tap into that? And how do we start addressing some of that? It has to um, come from a place of loving the people who are right next to us. So a lot of amazing things have happened in our neighborhood, but there's no specific formula because our lives don't follow formulas. Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come together in your name. I was incarcerated for 22 years. My family all passed away. Uh, I had nowhere to go and no family to come home to. And I applied for housing with uh, Living Water Ministry. And uh, they accepted me across the street from the first CIC church here in Grand Rapids. So I uh, immediately contacted Pastor Randy, and Pastor Randy said he would love me to come to First CRC. To minister with uh, folks who are dealing with a criminal sexual conviction. Man, that term just jumps up and gets everybody's attention. So it's been interesting in the sense of uh, not looking for this particular type of ministry. It just happened to be in the neighborhood. It happened to be part of the fabric of the community. And they happened to be knocking on the door. About two years ago, we found out that the land directly next to our church in Vancouver, literally 30 feet away, was going to be the home of a new welcome center for refugees coming into Vancouver in the Lower Mainland. Any government-assisted refugee will come from the airport into the building right next to us. And as a church, we were saying, this is, this is the mission field coming right beside us. This is who we're called to be. We're called to welcome the stranger. When I attended services, it was kind of awe-inspiring. It was, I've seen a body of believers worshiping together and singing together and praying together. And I thought, wow. They asked me my name. They became personal. You know, they reached out and it gave me a sense of belonging, like I have a family. We want to continue to live into our call of being faithful to the gospel in whatever way that looks like in the place where we are right now. And for us right now, that looks specific to refugees and newcomers, but it may look different in the future and it has looked different in the past. Guys who have spent decades in prison only to walk out renewed, restored, redeemed, and they live out of a profound sense of grace. And then you see it, and you go, wow. 
I'll take some of that too. There is a true godly affection that has bonded us together. I really love them. I really love them. And I believe that saying what Jesus said, no greater love than a man has than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's about, that's about sums it up right there. And these people have laid their lives down for me. And so in return, I would do the same for them.